Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Today, we'll be talking to Tanya Koch about her essay, Brother Love, which appeared in the spring issue of The Common. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Tanya Koch is a lawyer, writer, and philanthropy executive at the Ford Foundation, where she directs its gender, race, and ethnic justice division. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, and USA Today. She is currently working on a graphic novel about race and suburban motherhood. Tanya Koch, thanks for joining us. Hi, Emily. So nice to be here. Well, since we're not not face-to-face, I wonder if you could begin by describing where you're living now, where you're calling from, so we have a sense of place for our conversation. Yeah, sure. I am speaking to you from Montclair, New Jersey, a suburban town of about four 40,000 people located 12 miles west of New York City. I've lived in this town for 20 years. Um, It's an unusually interesting and diverse town with one of the few racially and socioeconomically integrated public schools in the nation, about which we are very proud. That's great. That's great. Thanks for setting the scene. I'd love to start off with a reading from your essay. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Sure. So the title of the piece is Brother Love. Scrawny was my first thought. I babysat enough by then to place his age at just shy of a year. As my father handed him to me, the baby arched his back in protest, his chicken butt threatening to escape his diaper completely. I could tell that a man had fastened it because the tape on the sides was all askew. Come, say hello to your brother, Daddy said, smiling. What could I do? I took the baby. He mewled and reached for my father, big brown baby eyes beseeching the man to save him from a stranger. I bounced the boy miserably on my knee. It's important that you know him, my father said. No, I thought, it's important to you that he know me. By that point, I didn't much care what my father wanted. He told each of us, my sisters and me, about our brother a few weeks before, in separate tete-a-tetes, as if this baby had materialized out of nowhere through virgin birth. I didn't bother to ask about the mother. It wasn't my mother, and that was all I needed to know. Thank you for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your essay yet, would you describe what the piece is about? Sure. Um, This is a personal essay that I wrote about two years ago. It's a story about love, about family, about forgiveness, specifically the process, my own process of coming to terms with my father's infidelities, one product of which was my half-brother, Sean. Um, Sean was born when I was 14 years old. Um, You know, I both adored my father, who was this super charismatic, larger-than-life personality, And at the same time, I was very, very angry at him for a long period of time. And, you know, it took me another 14 years to decide to really get to know my younger brother. And 
maybe another 25 years beyond that to really understand the dynamics of my dad's relationship to Sean's parents, my relationship to my father in all of it, and ultimately my very deep love for my brother. And so this, this essay is really about that process of coming to terms. Yes, that's wonderful. Um, I'd love to know, like, how did you come to write this essay? Like, what inspired you to start working on it? And what was that process like? <laughs> well, the truth is that guilt is what <laughs> inspired me to work on it. Okay. Yeah, about two years ago, I was reading this article in the New York Times about how to achieve meaningful relationships, you know, intimate relationships. And um, it came with a list of questions to ponder about people you love and then about yourself. And one of them was, if you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told somebody you loved? And why haven't you told them that thing yet? And, you know, what I wrote in response to that question was that I would want to tell my brother that I loved him and that I was sorry for ignoring him when he was growing up and that I didn't have a good excuse beyond guilt and the awkward passage of a lot of time for not having done that. So this essay was my way of making amends. Uh, do, do you, and did you feel like a sort of catharsis in the, in the process of writing it? Like you had, had got from one point to another point? Oh, totally. Um, you know, the truth is that I don't think that I actually decided to write the piece. I remember thinking, I, I want to tell Sean that, that I love him and I'm so sorry for ignoring him when he was a kid. But um, it was the fact that about a month after I read that article, Sean's dad died, not my father, but a man named David Baird who raised him passed away. And um, my sister and I flew to Ohio for the funeral, which occurred in this little teeny country church in uh, Southern Ohio. And it was just so very extraordinary, this memorial service. You know, there was no preacher, there were no hymns, but there were dozens of people who stood up and told these very touching, affecting, <laughs> raucously funny tales about David, he was, you know, as a father, an uncle, a brother, a friend who was born into this conservative Ohio family, but became this hippie naturalist. Um, you know, he was an iconoclast in every sense of the word. He was an artist and a nature lover who lived life on his own terms. He founded an artist colony off the grid in the backwoods. Um, but the whole service just filled me with this like strange kind of melancholy joy is the only way I can describe it to realize how much, um, David, the man who raised my brother and my father who sired him had in common, you know, they were both artists. They had a reverence for the handmade. They had a reverence for nature, a deep passion for politics. And of course they also shared this fierce love for their son in common. And, you know, although the service made me sad that I had missed, really kind of deliberately missed knowing this extraordinary man and family in which my brother was raised. But I also had this epiphany, you know, that it took my own father's passing to allow me to really embrace my brother. And it kind of took that funeral to make me, give me the courage to say all of that to Sean. Yeah, and so that's what really inspired the, the the writing of it rather than just the thinking about having the conversation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, that section you mentioned in the in the essay um, when you're at the funeral for, for David, who is Sean's father, I found so powerful, and I it just sort of surprised me because I, you know, you're through the course of the essay, you also mentioned your own father dying, and and I thought it was so interesting that like the real focus was actually on on David's funeral and and the sort of you know intense emotional things that were happening there. There's also an, a, a great moment where you talk about um, speaking to a, a, a family. Uh, maybe it's at the wedding um, where uh, it's there's some of David's children who didn't really stay in touch with him. Like, like there was a, a breach in the family, like a, a schism in the family, and they didn't stay in touch with him. And knowing all the things we know about David, that seems like such a tragedy that they didn't really know him. Yeah, you know, at, it wasn't until Sean's wedding, which was about 15, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that I met his his two of his three half half sisters on his father's side. So Sean had half half sisters, you know, both on his biological family's <laughs> father's side and on his um adoptive father's side. And um, you know, the truth is that, you know, his own parents story was complicated. David was married beforehand and um ended that marriage to be with uh, another woman, Roberta, and to kind of live his life as an artist on his own terms. And yeah, there were breaches on both sides. And it it kind of made me realize um, that, wow, you know, they had missed out too. They had missed out on knowing this extraordinary younger brother, Sean. You know, it took me about 14 years to really get to know to decide to get to know him. But I realized as we were sitting together at this wedding that they hardly knew anybody who was <laughs> at this gathering either. It was really kind of ironic, but it made me all the more grateful that I had made the decision to get over my anger at my father to really um, bring my brother into my life. Yeah, it really it comes across beautifully in, in the essay. I think there's like a real a real motion throughout the essay towards that towards that conclusion. Uh, you do a, a, such a beautiful job of evoking the different settings in this essay, and, and you know that uh, the common focus is on writing with a sense of place. So we've we've got Columbus, Ohio, which you call a city so average it became test product capital of the nation, <laughs> and then there's your father's farm. Uh, that lush land along the river in Jamaica. And then there's Mud City, which is the off-the-grid artist community you mentioned where your brother Sean grew up. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little more about choosing to include and describe those, those really diverse settings in this essay. Sure. You know, um, well, first, I just love the fact that this is a through theme of the writers that you and the essays that you publish in the common. You know, I'm um, I'm a relative amateur at writing, but I do find that place and setting are deeply evocative for me. And when I write, I can conjure whole pages of description about a given place, (laughs) much of which I then have to cut when editors like yours tell me I'm being digressive. But um, yeah, this particular story does range over a number of places, Columbus, Ohio, where I was raised in an upper middle class suburb, but in this pretty extraordinary neighborhood of of houses designed by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright in the Wrightian style. I should note that my father was an architect. Um, and then the off the grid in community in Ohio um, that, that was affectionately called mud, mud city where Sean was raised in a house that his parents built by hand. Um, and then the blue mountains of Jamaica were both my, sh- 
both Sean and my sister spent time during our adolescence, um, although separately from one another. Um, so yeah, they were like wildly different settings, you know, kind of your typical average American suburb, you know, this off the grid community. Um, but I think one of the things that I realized was that the, and one of the things that both my father and, and Sean's father, and they were, they were very good friends for many years. One of the things they shared was this deep reverence for, for, for nature most of the story toggles between Mud City and my dad's farm in Jamaica, which he bought on a whim, thinking that he would be a gentleman farmer and earn his pension from abroad, cultivating Blue Mountain Coffee, which is one of the world's most expensive coffees. And even back then in the 70s was selling for something like $18 a pound, even wow. though he knew absolutely nothing about farming. You know, this was a man who, um, when I was growing up, I remember once my mother asked him to plant a rose bush in the front yard and he dumped it in the hole with the burlap still on the roots. <laughs> but, but yet he had this like cockamamie idea that he was going to be a be a coffee farmer. But anyway, it was this stunningly beautiful piece of land. Um, it lay um, alongside a river in, in the northeast, most lush part of the island. Um, uh, and the, the land and farm is just, I, it's, it's hard to describe just how beautiful it is. There's seven natural waterfalls in that section of the property on the river and seven natural swimming holes. Um, in fact, the the farm, my father sold it about 20 years ago, and it's now owned by one of Bob Marley's sons. Wow. Um, and he, that is where he farms Marley coffee. Um, wow. But back in the 70s, when my father owned it, it was the scene of many raucous outings you know, with my father's friends and compatriots. And, um, you know, like the rural community in Ohio where Sean grew up, it was also deep in what Jamaicans call the bush, meaning there was no running water, there was no electricity, there wasn't even a standpipe by the road <laughs> to, 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 you know, wash your hands with. Um, so, you were really out there in, in, in nature and, you know, could commune with the natural environment in, in a, in a different way without the distractions of TV or movies or anything like that. It's like you and the crickets and the, the stars at night. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, it just it comes alive so well in in the essay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a moment in this essay that jumped out at me when you you describe trying to convince your brother Sean that as a young black man, Brooklyn wasn't really a safe place for him to live, largely because of the NYPD's very aggressive broken windows policing at that time. Uh, I was wondering, could you talk more about including that section in the essay? It's such an interesting moment, especially because we also get the sense from you that Sean had a, maybe a hard time being the only black kid growing up in a rural white community. Yeah. You know, I think one uh, part of what makes this such an interesting story is that my brother, Sean, was a biracial kid. Um, his 
His mother was white. His mm-hmm. biological father was black. He looked like he was, he was obviously a black child, um, being raised by two white parents in a virtually all white community on the edge of Appalachia, right? Which is not known as a racially enlightened place mm-hmm. in general. And this was, you know, he was born in 1977. So this was at a time when interracial adoption, much less whatever you called his unconventional family arrangement, was rare. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time he's a teenager and wrestling with all of those questions, you know, classic questions of identity. He's, you know, totally ashamed of his off the grid house in the woods. He prefers to just tell people that he's adopted when they see him with two white parents. Um, And, you know, like every other teenager, he's struggling to figure out his own identity. Um, And my father who came to visit Sean occasionally um, you know, I think every few weeks or a month, probably, was really Sean's only tether to Black culture. Um, and Sean held tight to that with, you know, some degree of overcompensation for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, he was um, an aspiring rapper. You know, he had the pager, he had the dreadlocks, he had the half dip, streetwise walk, you know, mm-hmm. even though he never spent any real time in urban settings. Um and in his senior year, I, uh, I, the, the story tells this, this episode in his senior year of high school when he decides he wants to attend Medgar Ever College in Brooklyn and live with me and my husband in um, Park Slope, Brooklyn, where we were living at the time. But, you know, this was the late 90s. It was the height of stop and frisk policing in New York City. I was working as a public defender at the time, so I knew that the odds of him surviving all of that racial profiling unscathed were, were just not good for mm-hmm. a young Black man, um, particularly one who wore his hair in dreadlocks. So I basically set down some cohabitating terms that were not in his favor, which <laughs> encouraged him to attend school elsewhere. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was painful to do, but it was kind of for his own good. <laughs> Yeah, I also, I, I mean, it's it's a sad moment in a lot of ways because of that reality and because of you having to sort of be the person who puts down the rules um, and convinces him of that. But it's also, I, I enjoyed it as a moment of you being like a big sister and, and sort of like being protective of him, which I think was like a really nice dynamic in the story. Yeah, I don't know that he appreciated it at the time, but in <laughs> retrospect, <laughs> I hope that he did. I hope that he did, you know, and, you know, he had... He had certainly had some talent as a rapper, but, you know, the odds of making it big in the music industry were pretty minuscule um, as well. And I knew that that was one of the attractions of being in the big city, too. But, you know, it it, uh, he was not a you know, he was not a streetwise kid Mm -hmm. as much as I think he wanted to be. And you're right. I was playing the role of the protected, (laughs) protective older sister by that point. So this essay lays bare a lot of complicated family history, and, and you also wrote a very moving, powerful essay about parenting and your daughter's emotional and health difficulties for the Washington Post. Do you find it hard to decide what to share and what to keep private? And like, is, is writing a way to discover and understand your own family more? Yeah, you know, for sure. Yes and yes, <laughs> the answer to those questions. You know, writing for me has been a means of working through emotionally challenging times in my life, for sure, especially in recent years. Um, The essay that you refer to is a piece that I wrote in 2018 about my daughter's struggle with conversion disorder, um, which is a rare psychosomatic condition in which the brain 
converts acute stress into physical disabilities like blindness or paralysis, or Mm -hmm. in her case, um, she suffered very debilitating seizures. Um, And in her case, it was a response to post-traumatic stress following the murder of my elder sister in 2013. And then on the first year of my sister's death, the three alarm fire that completely destroyed our home in New Mm -hmm. Jersey. Um, And I ultimately wrote a lot about that period of time, the loss of my sister, all that she meant to me, you know, the experience of walking through the justice system on the other side of the courtroom, no longer as a defense attorney, but a victim family member, Um, you know, the disruption and terror of the fire, all the nervous breakdowns that various family members suffered in the wake of all of that. And, you know, the truth is that the writing saved my sanity, you know, during a four, almost five-year period of crisis. And I don't know that I could have survived it otherwise. Um, But yes, too, I wrestle hugely with the issue of privacy and whether I can actually publish what I'm writing when it implicates the family. Um, you know, and in the end, I, I never have published what I've written about my sister because it would just be too hard for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the piece about my daughter, I asked her permission. I said, you know, how would you feel about my publishing it? And, you know, she had made enough progress in her recovery from that hard period of time, I think, to see it as a story of, um, of recovery and redemption and um, strength and resilience. But um, I think had it been written, you know, even maybe a year before that, she would not have been ready. And, you know, of course, when one writes about one's families, you know, you really, you really do need to be um, careful and, you know, I think get their permission. But I do, it's funny, I read a lot of memoirs, um, Educated by Tara Westover, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Right now I'm reading Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, which Mm -hmm. won the Booker Prize this fall. And, you know, there are times I'm reading these books that are just about like really hard things in the family. And I want to call up those authors and ask them like, how did they reconcile writing like hard or shame inducing things about their parents and siblings? It's like, how did you get permission to do that? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I've been reading a little more memoir lately and I also have encountered that. Yeah. Um, But it's really nice to hear that your daughter was able to have that attitude about it, that she had reached that, that place. Um, I feel like I've been reading a lot about, um, uh, what did you call it again? Conversion disorder. Disorder. Okay, yes, that's what I was trying to say. Um, in in a in a memoir and also in in a novel that I read, and I think, you know, I I am very sad that your daughter had to go through that, but I think like people talking about it and publishing about it and that kind of thing is making it a little more of a redemption story, like you said, like a little more of a thing that we can cope with. Wow, you'll have to tell me what those those books or essays are. It's a pretty rare condition. I don't know that I've read anything about it before, so you'll have to share those titles with me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering also what 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 else trips you up when you're writing? Are there parts of the process that you have to struggle through, or does it really depend on the piece? You know, um, I'm not a young person, but I am relatively new to writing and definitely new to writing creatively. Um, you know, I, as a lawyer um, and as a policy advocate, I've done a, a lot of writing in my career, but, you know, policy oriented and legal writing, which is different. Um, but I've 
you know, I was editor of my law review in, um, in, in law school. So I have a lot of experience writing and I don't find the process of writing difficult. Um, but this kind of writing is of course different, right? Because it's more literary, it's more creative. Um, but in general, I don't find the process of writing difficult, especially when I'm emotionally engaged with the subject matter. Um, someone once told me that I do my best writing when I'm mad. Like, oh, Tanya, like when you're pissed, like I just, you know, like you write these great essays. I think it's it's the same is true when I'm sad. You know, um, the memoir about my sister's death that I wrote some years ago was probably the easiest thing I've ever written. I mean, it was hard emotionally, but mm-hmm. it was a catharsis. And so it just poured out on the page, like fully formed as a manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what's harder for me is the publishing of things that others um, family members in particular might find hard that trips me up, you know, um, you know, I wrote, a, a, a essay about another daughter's recovery from, um, trauma and PTSD as well. But she said, she looked at the draft. She's like, no, thank you. <laughs> Not ready to share that. And yeah. so of course I have to respect that, you know, mm-hmm. but that's one reason why I'm now trying to write fiction. <laughs> So it's just a little less complicated. <laughs> yeah, no, I will. I, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I found that. Um, so you're you're the director of the Ford Foundation's Gender, Racial, and Ethnic Justice Program, and I I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about that, what you're working on, and I'm also really curious if 2020 changed the focus of your work at all. Oh wow, great questions. Um, yeah, so my unit at Ford is where we support the work of some really amazing organizations advancing racial justice, criminal justice, immigrant and gender rights movements in the U.S. And uh, absolutely, 2020 has been a doozy, both in ways terrifying and inspiring. Um, You know, there's been COVID, of course, which has Mm -hmm. devastated Black and Brown and Indigenous communities really more than others. You know, those communities have suffered rates of infection and death three and four times that of the general population. There have been urgent needs for direct relief on the ground among everyone who has lost a job, but among the hardest hits are immigrants, for example, (laughs) who aren't eligible for government relief. You know, Native Americans living on reservations with poor sanitation or no water supply, and then people in prison, right, who are in congregate Mm -hmm. care um, with no ability to socially distance, very poor um, uh, supplies with regard to sanitation or PPE. Um, And given the recession, fundraising revenue is just down for most nonprofits that we support. And so in in response, our foundation has done some, I think, pretty um, amazing things. Um, My boss, Darren Walker, the president of our foundation, borrowed a billion dollars against its endowment from the bond market and is now distributing that $1 billion to our most important grantees across a range of issue areas and in the U.S. and in 10 um, areas of the world overseas. Um, You know, I think the inspiring part of the year has been uh, the summer of protests and and uprisings following the tragic murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. You know, um, to see the Black Lives Matter movement flower from a hashtag to a global movement has been just so amazing and thrilling. And I'm just so proud of the young activists and their allies for 
all of the tenacious organizing that they have done and are doing. Um, and yeah, it's changed um, the nature of work. It's changed our grant making. We're funding and raising more money for Black-led organizing than ever before. Um, I think in some ways, you know, the Floyd's killing has made us more skeptical of traditional efforts to impose due process accountability reforms on police mm-hmm. departments where the culture is just deeply broken and racist you know, so we're leaning more into campaigns that are shifting the focus from, you know, using the police as the response to every problem in favor of social service responses to homelessness, to mental health crises, you know, the kinds of calls that generate lots of um, police response, but don't need to. So right. yeah, it, it's making, making us um, uh, think and change and do things differently for sure. Yeah, and I think probably, you know, you've been working on this for a while, and, and then unfortunately for I think a lot of us, this, the, coming to these issues and coming to these these facts is, is sort of new for us. But I suppose, you know, you've been, you've been doing this for a while. This isn't, isn't news to you. Yeah, but, you know, the, the, the great thing about um, doing the work of social change is that there's always something new to learn. And there are always surprises, always surprises. I mean, you know, if you had told me a year ago that um, <laughs> that defunding the police would be a rallying cry across the country and that, you know, uh, the city of Minneapolis would have cut millions of dollars from its from its, you know, public safety slash policing budget, I would have told you you know, what are you smoking? That that's <laughs> yeah. not going to happen in the next yeah. year. And, you know, yeah, you know, I just, I just think that we live in um, such a dynamic political and social environment, some of it good, some of it terrible, you know, mm-hmm. as the, the showdown at the nation's capital just um, earlier this week showed that it, it, it both, um, makes for tragedy, but it also makes some pretty amazing leaps forward in social justice possible as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think I found a lot of the the movements and, and things that happened in 2020 and, and this past week, as you said, sort of like simultaneously encouraging and frustrating because I feel like we, we've come a long way and things are happening really fast. And that's so exciting because they've needed to happen for so long. But at the same time, it's it's very frustrating because there's always something stopping it. There's always something kind of standing in the way and, you know, and we're never, we're never quite there. Yeah. It's, it's, I think in general, the last year has been um, kind of equal parts terrifying and inspiring, Mm -hmm. you know, and we have to lean into what is inspiring (laughs) and face (laughs) down what is terrifying. Yeah. That's very well said. (laughs) Um, I, so I have to also say, I love this line in your Twitter, Twitter bio. It says you're a recovering lawyer and returning artist. <laughs> what does that mean to you? <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of us recovering lawyers out there. <laughs> you know, I, I am very grateful for my law degree. I've been, um, my legal career has been fascinating and um, I love being a courtroom lawyer. I was a public defender for years. Um, so I love and appreciate the, the, the law, but it's also limiting. You know, it's, it's all about rules and precedent. And um, part of what is frustrating as a social change maker is um, pushing the edges of the law to go further 
to do justice. And um, that's sometimes frustrating. But I think that the the line in the bio about um, being a recovering lawyer and a returning artist is more of a reference to the fact that when I was younger, I did a lot of drawing and painting. And in my 20s, I made a lot of textile art. Um, I spent three months in Africa learning traditional methods of tie-dye and batik. I considered attending art school at one point, um, but instead I went the route of political science and then law school and ultimately became a civil rights lawyer. Um, And, you know, I've loved that career, as I said, but it uses one very analytical side of the brain. And now that my children are older, I'm finding time to rediscover my creative side, you know? Um, I, as I said, I've done a lot of public policy writing in my career, but for the first time in my life, I'm now writing creatively. And it's, it's just great to kind of get back to the more artistic side of my soul. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're glad you are because otherwise we wouldn't have your wonderful essay. <laughs> uh, so I've got one last question, which is just what you're working on now. Like what's next for you? Yeah. Well, um, at the moment I'm finishing up a fictional short story, my first short story I've ever written about a black girl from Chicago who lands in an all white therapeutic boarding school after, um, an incident of domestic violence that ends with her arrest. Um, it's, you know, it's a fish out of water tale that, that, illuminates, I hope, the hugely race and class determined nature of our juvenile justice system. You know, it's a system that treats the trauma and um, dysfunctional behavior of poor black and brown kids as a criminal justice issue, while it treats, you know, the trauma and dysfunction of white middle class and upper class children with empathy and psychotherapy, you know, as a mental health problem. And the story was my way of exploring what would happen if those two worlds collided. Um, and it's, it's actually been a subject of my social justice work for years, but the inspiration to write it from, from a fictional perspective came from this um, kind of little known Toni Morrison story called Recessative that I reread a couple of months ago. I don't know if, if you know it, Emily. But um, it's actually Morrison's one and only published short story. It's about two girls, one white and one black, who meet and develop a friendship when they're temporarily placed in an orphanage in um, the, I think, in the 1960s. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, that kind of made me think about this premise. And uh, I, I've, I've just finished the story. I haven't, you know, placed it yet, but. But um, but it was a lot of fun to write. Um, and then I'm also working on a, a graphic memoir about navigating suburban motherhood in an integrated town like the one that I live in. You know, it's a pretty complex place that's generally trying to live its values, but but always in struggle against you know kind of baser human instincts around property values and racial privilege and everything else that, um, people in America and the suburbs, um, deal with, but it's, um, unlike my other memoir, it's a much more lighthearted and humorous take on race, class, and motherhood. Um, and, and there the, the kind of inspiration analog was Ross Chass book about the decline of her elderly, elderly parents. I think it's called, can't we think can't we talk about something more pleasant? Um, 
so anyway, it's about me, but it's more about the universal experience of motherhood in a socially complex um, and time, right? And racially complex setting. Um, but it's also allowing me to get back into my drawing, which is great. <laughs> I'm teaching myself how to draw with computer software on an iPad, which um, uh, currently is hugely frustrating, but I'm confident that I'm going to be uh, mastering it and that it will eventually be deeply satisfying because you can erase and recolor endlessly. It is like such a fantastic thing. So, so anyway, and then I'm also about 50 pages into a novel about friendship and betrayal that, you know, I'm maybe just beginning to revisit, but it's too early to talk about that one. (laughs) That's great. Well, it's so nice to hear that you have so many exciting projects going on. I love that there's one that allows you to sort of integrate your writing and your and your artistry. Um, Tanya, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to talk with you. Well, thank you, Emily, for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, a pleasure for me as well. Uh, listeners, you can read Tanya's essay, Brother Love, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.